Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once, I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, the falling action, and the resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot, to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally like the ending. And today I am here to discuss the ending of Gerald's Game. Now, when talking about Gerald's Game, sorry, uh, it's important to talk about this particular phase in King's career. So, with Gerald's Game, King begins to explore the feminine perspective and really embraces um, his storytelling prowess by diving in deep in uh, the the female's perspective. So we get this, we get Dolores Claiborne, we get um, uh, abuse as a major subplot in Insomnia, and we get Rose Matter. So there's a stretch here where he's definitely exploring this. And of this stretch... You know, you, I think that it's safe to say that Gerald's Game is probably um, the, the best known entry in this particular phase. So we'll talk about that a little bit as we discuss the ending of Gerald's Game. But in the meantime, guys, I just want to say that I apologize. I uh, haven't really published anything in, in just about a month. And I got to say that work has been wildly busy uh, and has kept me away from uh, the, the podcasting world. But I'm glad to be back for this episode. And um, not only am I going to talk about Gerald's Game today, I'm also going to get into a review of Dark, the Netflix show, and the OA um, and a recommendation for a novel that I'm currently reading, have not finished yet. But I think that's important as we head into the Halloween season that you all have the opportunity to read this. Um, and that is Kill Creek by Scott Thomas. Um, like I said, I'm only halfway through it. And I'll talk about it towards the end of the podcast. And I'll tell you why it's worth picking up. Um, but I am going to uh, spoil my thoughts on it. But unless it completely falls apart, which I do not see it doing, um, this is the the best horror novel that I have read Um I want to say in at least 10 years. I, I don't know what it's taking the the, the, the the title from, but I have not been as in love and um, engrossed and charmed by a horror novel um, as much as I, I, I currently am with Kill Creek by uh, Scott Thomas. So I'll talk about that later on. Okay. Uh, before I get any further, uh, this is the first time I am recording an episode for quite a while, and uh, definitely um, the first time I'm recording since I made an appearance on another podcast dedicated to Stephen King. So I want to give a big shout out to uh, Michael Rothman and the Losers Club for this past summer's uh, ad hoc Kingfluencer podcast. Um, which you can find over at the Losers Club feed. Um, and this really was a highlight of the summer for yours truly. Um, it featured um, myself, uh, John um, 
Campaniano, who uh, directed Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. Johanna, who is a friend of the podcast, um, whose Instagram account, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book Instagram account that has over 36,000 followers. Um, and Jen Adams, longtime listener of the Stephen King cast, um, who happens to be the host of her own awesomely titled uh, Psychoanalysis Podcast, which I highly rec- recommend. Um, uh, they're, they're still early on in the podcast endeavor, but so far they have explored um, uh, and examined mental health through the lens of horror movies. Um, and it's such an enjoyable and cathartic treat. So I, I strongly, strongly recommend um, uh, Psychoanalysis. Again, ridiculously awesomely titled uh podcast and this couldn't have been possible without michael rothman uh who is the bill denbro of it all um bringing everybody together and keeping us focused for just about two hours as we waxed and waned on all things stephen king so it was a really cool team up um i said that i felt like the father callahan coming in to join the content and uh you know you 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 know, I'm usually you guys get me, uh, you know, once a week talking to you, but it was good to actually talk to people, um, about, about Stephen King. So that was awesome. And and hopefully it's, it's the first of many future, uh, collaborations, uh, between the Stephen King cast and, uh, the losers club. Okay, guys. So what I'm going to do now, I am going to discuss the conclusion to Gerald's game. But first, let me read the Wikipedia so that we have the foundation upon which we can build our analysis. Jesse Burlingame and her husband Gerald, a successful and aggressive lawyer, travel to their secluded lake house in western Maine for an unplanned romantic getaway. The titular game involves handcuffing Jesse to the bed for lovemaking, a recent addition to their marriage that both partners find exciting. This time, however, Jesse finds herself reluctant after being handcuffed to the bedposts and asks to stop only to be ignored by Gerald, who pretends her protests are only part of their game. Realizing her husband is deliberately feigning ignorance and that he plans to rape her, Jesse lashes out, kicking Gerald in the chest. The shock causes him to have a fatal heart attack. He dies, leaving Jesse still handcuffed to the bed. At first, Jesse is only horrified at her husband's death and fears the embarrassment of being discovered semi-naked and handcuffed, but she quickly realizes the situation is far more dire. It is unlikely that she or Gerald will be missed for several days. No one will think to look for them at the lake house, and all the usual lake residents have gone for the season. There is a real possibility that Jessie will die if she cannot escape. While Jessie frantically explores and rejects plans, a combination of panic and thirst causes her to hallucinate voices. The Good Wife, or Goody Burlingame, a puritanical version of herself that undermines her escape attempts by insisting that things will be fine and that she should wait to be rescued. Punkin, a representation of Jessie as a young girl. Ruth, a college roommate whom Jessie abandoned after a conversation that strayed dangerously close to uncovering Jessie's childhood. And Nora, Jessie's former psychologist with whom she had a similar encounter and who she likewise abandoned. Guided by these voices, Jessie is able to recall the long-repressed memory of being sexually abused by her father during a solar eclipse when Jessie was 10. She also begins to acknowledge how unhappy and controlling her marriage to Gerald was, suspecting that she gave up her independent and courageous spirit for the security of being Gerald's trophy wife. Waking from an imaginary confrontation with all these characters to a dark bedroom, Jessie sees a tall, gaunt apparition in the corner of the room, 
whom she initially mistakes for the spirit of her long-dead father and whom she nicknames Space Cowboy. The figure shows her a wicker basket of jewelry mixed with human bones. Unsure if the figure is another hallucination, Jesse dismisses it, saying aloud that it is only made of moonlight, which seems to make it vanish. Her inner voices, however, believe that the figure is real and will return to harm Jesse if she does not escape by the next night. The following morning, Jesse manages to secure a drink of water from a glass on the bedside table. Refreshed and encouraged by her own ingenuity in getting the water, she renews her efforts to escape, first by trying to break the headboard, then by trying to slip off the bed and push it to the bureau where the keys are placed. Inspired by her memory of the eclipse, in which her father warned her not to cut herself on the glass panes they used as eclipse viewers, Jesse breaks the water glass and uses the sharp, the sharp shard to slice her wrist, giving herself a degloving injury to lubricate her skin long enough to slide her right hand from the cuff. She is then able to escape the bed, reach the keys, and free her other hand only to faint from blood loss. When she awakens, it is nearly dark and the space cowboy, now undeniably real, has returned. Jesse throws her wedding ring at his box of jewelry and bones, thinking that this is what he wanted all along, then runs to her car and drives away, only to discover the space cowboy in the, hidden in the back seat. Jesse crashes and is knocked unconscious. Months later, Jesse is still recuperating from her ordeal. An attorney at Gerald's law firm assists that assists her in covering up the incident to protect her and the law firm from scandal, but Jesse feels this is another version of burying her trauma, just as she buried the childhood abuse the years before. To free herself, Jesse writes to the real Ruth, with whom she has not spoken in decades, dealing what what really happened at the lake house and subsequent events. The space cowboy was a serial killer and a necrophile named Raymond Andrew Joubert, who had been living and robbing lake houses in the area. Jesse confronted Joubert at his court hearing, where Joubert mocked her uh, made-of-moonlight statement, confirming that the encounter really occurred and causing Jesse to spit in his face. Being able to directly confront the man who once terrified her allowed her to face the other manipulative men in her life, including her father and Gerald, freeing her of fear and allowing her to deal more honestly with her past. She apologizes for abandoning Ruth, acknowledging that Ruth had confronted her with a truth that she could not face and hopes that they can resume their friendship. After mailing the letter, Jesse is able to sleep without nightmares for the first time since her ordeal at the lake house. So in order to talk about the end, we need to uh, clarify the end. So coming off the heels of the um, revelation of what occurred during the solar eclipse, we have the climax, which is her um, escape from the bed, um, the degloving scene, the falling action, her passing out, trying to escape, crashing the car and then the resolution which is the courthouse um and her finally feeling free okay so here is the criteria for a good ending does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters actions conflicts and themes of the book oh my god yes i mean has he ever crafted a character who you wanted to escape and um have a happy ending more than jesse burlingame this is a you know, basically a, a one-hander, you know, she, she, with, with the exception of Gerald in the beginning, um, she doesn't, and, you know, the space cowboy, who, through the, the majority of the book, could just be a figment of her imagination, at least she thinks so, Jessie is only interacting with herself. We get to know Jessie incredibly intimately, um, which is no surprise, as she is shackled, basically naked, to a bed, 
Um, so we get we get to know Jesse. We are there with Jesse. We are shackled ourselves to her, just as she is shackled to the bedpost. So, yes, um, the 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 purpose of the ending of this novel is to free this character for her to find the freedom for her to. I you know I said that is for her for us to free her. No, she frees herself from the trauma that has been inflicted upon her. Um, and she is able to walk away from it, um, leaving those shackles behind. So yes, for a novel whose cover is the, the handcuffs on the bedpost, her physically um, unshackling herself and uh, metaphorically and spiritually being able to do the same, um, which I'll get to in a second, uh, is 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 very consistent with this character um who through the entire story is struggling with these different representations of herself who are trying to pull her and push her in different directions and she finally is able to find the real jesse burling game through all of it um so the end she is whole she is healing and she is going to to move on so yes um it is an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the actions, conflicts, and themes of the book. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Absolutely. There is the mystery of the past, which is running throughout the, the, the novel, which is tied into her as a character. It's not some supernatural mystery. Well, there is a supernatural element with Dolores Claiborne. Spoiler alert. But... um. You know, it is it is a mystery that has everything to do with the character because this is a character focused uh, novel um, rather than a plot one. Um, the the plot has to be uh, interwoven with the character on a fundamental level. Um, we have the mystery of the past, like I said. We have the present day immediate p uh, peril. Uh, we have the increasing tension in the present. Not only can she die of dehydration if she remains handcuffed to the bed. But, you know, King knows how to ratchet up the tension by having her in danger of being murdered by a shadowy figure. And the question about this character's reality only heightens the danger itself. So um, in terms of, of the plot, um, yes, it is the, the conclusion of this novel very successfully wraps up the plot. And, you know, her having to, to escape the bedroom um, before nightfall creates that ticking clock. So not only is she possibly going to die of dehydration, not anymore is she going to possibly be killed by this character if it is a shadowy figure. King has created a ticking time bomb of her needing to escape, and that uh, increases the tension. It really helps with the plot. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yes. Um, as I said earlier, um, Jesse has been physically shackled to the bed with Gerald's handcuffs, which is a physical representation of Jesse's life since the sexual assault from her father during the eclipse. In that moment, the lights literally went out. The sun went out. It ceased to exist for her, and she has been subservient and symbolically chained by the men in her life. Her degloving scene, as gnarly as it is, allows for her physical escape, and with it, comes the catharsis of an emotional escape from the heavier change that had held her captive since she was a child. Um, and in terms of the, the, the symbolism, we have three men in her life, 
We have the, the, the abuser from the past, the abuser from the present, and then with the, the, the uh, space cowboy, um, you know, he is the, 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 the future um, and what would have been the future or the lack thereof for Jesse had she not taken control of her own life. So yes, um, thematically, she has been able to wrest her future back from an abuser and take control of it. So on every level, yes, um, this is a, a, a wonderfully um, thematically rich text and the ending pays off on that. The next question is that um, is one that I like to explore. What is the most famous scene in the novel and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Uh, this does not hurt um, an ending, I don't think, um, but I think that it helps. And I would say that the most famous scene in this book is the degloving scene. And yes, I believe it most certainly um, appears, oh, well, it does certainly appear in the ending of, of the novel. And I think that it does help. It is a memorable scene, and you see the lengths that Jesse will go to to live and to reclaim her life. It's an iconic moment in King's uh, bibliography, um, and both wonderfully and horrifically recreated on screen by Mike Flanagan in, uh, in his adaptation on Netflix, which I'm going to be honest, I... Um, now that I have really explored the ending in, in greater detail, I was too hard on the ending of that adaptation. Um, I have a better appreciation for, for endings now, and I retract my um, any criticisms that I have that I lobbied at, or that I lobbed rather, at the conclusion of the adaptation. An adaptation which I happen to very much enjoy, but I remember, if I, if I remember correctly, I kind of. Um, criticized elements of the ending, um, which I, I think is unfair. Okay. Um, are there other factors that we need to consider? Um, yes, this is uh, a departure for King when he wrote it. Like I said, this is the beginning of his phase of exploring the, the, the feminine perspective. Um, he, he, he follows the, the, the plot line of the, the solar eclipse with Dolores Claiborne. Um, so this is, um, they, they, they function in tandem as a pair. Um, we, we, we see um, the, the, the baton passed to the characters in Insomnia. Um, and again, the abuse baton is passed to, um, to Rose Matter. So there's a, there's a lot going on in which King wants to explore. But as I said earlier at the top, um, this is the, the most famous, I would say, of, the, of this phase of his journey. So, with everything that I talked about, I got two questions that I need to answer. Based on the characters and the theme and the wrap-up of the plot, um, do I happen to like the ending? Yeah, I very much do like the ending. Um, but more importantly, is it a good ending? And yes, um, the, I, I, cannot, I cannot see anyone saying otherwise. Um, this is a good ending. So, that leaves us now... Um, I happen to like 21 out of 21 endings, um, and I would say that 19 out of 21 endings are quote-unquote good. So unless he can, starts to fall apart, I would say that Stephen King, based on the criteria that we're using, knows how to end his books. All right, uh, so that's all that I have now for 
um, I'm, I'm, I'm Gerald's game. But what I want to talk about right now is some wrap up to uh, the summer. Um, and this past summer, I ingested a lot of different forms of media. Um, I watched a lot of movies. Um, I read a lot of books and I watched a ton of TV and every summer there's always uh, a show or two that really, really captures my attention. Um, and this past year, I would say that, um, I am happy that I finally got around and in perfect time to watch dark. So the final season dropped on Netflix, it's three seasons long, and I got around to finally watching all of it all at once. And I'm glad I did it that way. So let me talk a little bit about Dark and let me tell you why, as a Stephen King fan, you might like it without any spoilers. So one, takes place in a small town, um, the town of Wyndham. So you might like that the first season, especially the beginning of the first season, it's going to give you Stranger Things vibes. And clearly, Stranger Things, with that first season of Stranger Things, um, really invoked... Stephen King. So there are some similarities to uh, the the vibe of Stranger Things, um, which in turn is inspired by Stephen King. So you'll start to get that familiar small town kind of thing going on. Um, there are doorways to other whens. So think of uh, the drawing of the three time periods. Um, when Roland opens one door, he goes to one specific time, goes to another door, he goes to another specific time. Uh, so think of it that way. There are fixed moments in time where our characters can travel to within Dark. Fans of It will like the past-present structure of the characters interacting with one another. Uh, there's one episode in the second season where the kids get together um, and the parents get together that felt very much It. Um, and dead kids, there's dead kids, which we see a lot of, uh, in the, in the works of Stephen King. So that is my, uh, end that that's my spoiler free version. Uh, the, the rest of this, um, I'm going to talk about spoilers and, and what I liked here. Okay. So guys, um, I'm going to talk about this. And then after I'm done with this, I'm going to talk about the OA. I'm just going to spoil the OA, um, so here on out, I'm, I'm pretty much talking uh, about spoilers. So keep that in mind for both Dark and and uh, the Yoway. So uh, don't don't go any further if you want to not be spoiled. Um, okay, so I'm glad, like I said, I binged it all because if I was watching this in real time, I would not know what's going on in this show. Um, but I gotta say that I, I loved it. I loved it. I was obsessed with it as I was watching it. I was so impressed with it. Um, with the, the intricacy of the time travel. It was something that we have seen. We, we've seen little bits of, of, of time travel like this, of the, the bootstrap paradox and um, people's actions in the present affecting both the past and the, 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 the future. We've seen that a little bit in Lost. Um, and I'm sure in, in, in hard sci-fi out there, um, not really a big sci-fi, but I'm, I'm sure that it exists. Uh, but the idea of the, the, the past, um, the actions of the present affecting both the, the, the past and uh, the, um, the future, that's, that, that's incredible stuff. And we saw that a lot here in, um, in Dark. And so I, I just kind of want to talk about um, season two and season three, which 
have been, um, I don't know if criticized is the, the right word, but definitely compared to the first season. And maybe criticisms have come up about that. Um, so I think that's important to, to talk about the relationship between season two and three to season one. Think about what I've been doing with the Stephen King cast and examining endings and the relationship of endings to um, the the everything that came before and how the ending is the final evolution of of the beginning of the story, so to speak. So what I think that we liked about the first season of um, Dark was the charming town of, of Wyndham, which is something that we can all relate to, even though we don't live in Germany. Um it's recognizable. It's a real world. It's it's a reality that is um, that is established that um, we uh, can see ourselves in, and it's the mystery of something outside the recognized reality coming in to this small town, right? And it's the mystery that draws us in, and it's what raises the stakes around our characters. And um, it starts with you know the the disappearance of a young boy, right? That's something that is that we can all react to because it's within our recognizable range of emotions. Um, but it's also wrapped in a mystery. And in order to follow that mystery, you need to get to seasons two and three. So yes, it winds up becoming um, very... They, they, they double down on the time travel until the point where we get to season three where it's not just about time travel. It's about parallel universes um and people caught in a in a constant time loop um these four families who are not able to escape uh this knot that um ultimately by the end it comes down to kind of mirrors the the, the very beginning so after all of this grand cosmic exploration the beginning of the show dealt with a a, a father losing a child and the, the the end of the show um uh came down to the our main characters having to assist a father from losing the child so that that grief is what starts the show and ultimately what what ends the show and thematically and symbolically um that grief um is ameliorated and uh is healed and the characters who were so wrapped up in that grief um, that uh, that the Nielsens felt when Mikkel goes missing, they are the ones uh, to ultimately heal uh, our, our character who turns out to be responsible for this knot um, in the end. Um, and I think that that is, it is, we're bookended here by, by, by a father losing a child. And I think that, that that's so well-balanced and symmetrical. I think that that's, that that's great. And then in between, you have this wild, intricate, um, incredibly complex uh, spider web of, of a story that is just so, so impressive. Um, and let's talk about the ending. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a killer ending. Uh, Completely. I mean, and, and first, when I when I talk about the ending, I, I mean, I, I first want to talk about the, the the dinner scene at the end, which to me gave real 
Dark Tower vibes. Um, so spoiler alert for the Dark Tower, and I mean the the conclusion to the Dark Tower, Book Seven, the Dark Tower. Um, so in that, Eddie, Susanna, and Jake find themselves reunited, kind of, um, in a in an alternate world where, you know, it's implied that they will live a life together, um, and it's happy, you know, and they did live, and there there is there's a bittersweetness to this. Because we are happy for them that they are granted some sort of peace free from conflict and strife and the, the, the pain that we saw of them throughout this journey. However, much like the Dark Tower, it's not them anymore. And the journey that we went along with them on kind of didn't happen um more so in dark than in the dark tower because Susanna exits a door into this world it is the Susanna whereas this is an Eddie and a Jake that isn't really Eddie and Jake if you want to talk about souls probably embodied by the souls of these characters however um it's still not the Eddie and the Jake and the Susanna with the memories of living in midworld and going through this journey together and being a part of the quartet right and similarly here at this dinner table these families exist, but they're not the families that we knew, and they don't have the relationships that we knew that they have. So um, Katerina, to see her alive is great. I'll talk about her death in a second, but um, she doesn't have her children, you know, and there's a sadness there. Um, and to know that that Charlotte and Elizabeth don't exist, and Magnus and um and and francesca and marta and jonas just don't exist like th there's deep sadness there um so that 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 really left me with a, a similar feeling from the uh the ending of the the dark tower um now let's talk about the endings for our characters on the show i mean i i, I, talk, I want to talk about ulrich who was pretty much our, our our main character of season one we never really see him again after katarina dies um and again i'll talk about katarina in a second but um i like the fact that we don't see him dissolving away or we don't see him again after katarina leaves him in uh in the the institution to try and and break him out the idea that he got his hopes up again and then he's just stuck there until he ultimately dissolves and ceases to ever have existed is deeply troubling and deeply sad. And we don't need to see him kind of drifting away the way that we do with the others. Sometimes the omission of a resolution is the ending that we need for a particular character. And it, it I find it haunting that this character who was driven to travel through time to save his son not only gets locked up in uh, a mental institution for having with authorities believing that he killed the son that he traveled in time to go back and then spent his entire adult life trapped um, concurrent to his past and then just ceases to exist that is a raw cosmic deal similarly katrina who is killed by her own mother after trying to rescue her time-lost adulterous husband, 
that was hard to watch. That was so hard to watch. Um, this show does not pull punches when it comes to its characters. Similarly, Hannah, Hannah being killed by her son, you know, who at that time still is the, um, you know, he, he's not the old Adam yet. You know, it, he's the scarred up version of the, the stranger version of J- Jonas, you know, the, the Desmond looking, uh, uh, Jonas who we associate with being good. Right. But his first big heel turn act is to murder his mother who, by the way, you know, was this, this agent of chaos throughout the entire show. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying that she deserved to die or anything. I'm saying, in fact, I'm saying the exact opposite. I mean, her being murdered like this is, um, an awful way to go. Um, so in the uh, this new timeline, now that the knot is untangled, um, as I stated, half our cast has simply ceased to be. So Ulrich, Magnus, Mikkel, Martha all cease to exist because without the possibility of time travel, then Mikkel can't go back in time to become Michael, who then fathers Jonas. And Jonas, in his time-traveling escapades, brings his friend Bartos, who... Um, in the past, has two children who grew up to be Noah and Agnes. Agnes is the mother of Ulrich's father, and Ulrich is Mikkel's father, and Mikkel time travels to become Michael, the father of Jonas. So, if there's no time travel, there's no Nielsen lineage, which includes our star-crossed lovers, Martha and Jonas. Similarly, Agnes's brother Noah falls in love with time-traveling Elizabeth, who has a child, Charlotte, who has a child who becomes the time-traveling Elizabeth, an endless loop of the daughter constantly giving birth to the mother. So, because of that, no more Charlotte, Elizabeth, or Francesca. And our characters just, they don't die. They don't go into the afterworld. They, they, the universe erases them from existence. I always find that haunting. I, I find that so bone chilling. Um, and it just refers to the indifference of this universe. So these characters, these, these, these two characters, these two teenage kids in love and they just want to be together. But not only can they not be together, they're, they're destined to be locked in a war with each other. Um, and the only resolution is for them to never exist. It's, I mean, the show is called dark, right? And it's, it's dark concepts here. Um, but man, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, there are some inconsistencies here. Um, you know, with, um, I would say that Noah's experiments on the kids that we see in season one, uh, seem out of place by the time you get to the end. Um, and I, I think that to me, it's clear that there was some recalibration with the character of Noah, um, and little details like him being the weird priest villain don't align as perfectly as, as you want to, but oh, well, I mean, still, uh, he's still a cool character. Um, and you can't really fault it. Uh, and another, um, inconsistency is um i mean not so much a inconsistency but kind of just a weird uh well just let me explain it you know the show begins with a missing child eric i think his name is who is completely unimportant to the rest of the cosmically important interconnected characters um and that to me just kind of seems a little bit out of place now i know that the body travels back to the past where it's discovered where the nuclear power plant will be and Ulrich will be assumed to be the murderer. I get it. But the fact that everyone is so intricately interconnected in each other's lives and lineages for this character to just exist outside of that and be the, 
the inciting, not even the inciting incident, but just part of the vibe that's occurring in the town because there was this missing child that is not really a factor in the overall plot um, or, or mechanics of time travel just seems to be a little, a little different, but Hey, those are small little nitpicks and you can nitpick anything. Um, but I, I was obsessed with this show, um, for the, the, like the two or so weeks that I binged watch it. And I'm so happy that I did it. I'm very, very grateful for dark. And then I followed up with the OA, which I had heard a lot about for sure. And I wanted to give it a chance. So the, uh, the OA, I had heard a lot about it and I gotta be honest, I was, um, emotionally lukewarm on season one. Uh, cerebrally, I understood it, but I couldn't connect to it the way that I had wanted to. Um, part of it was the setting um, after Owe's escape of Hap um, in in the suburbs of wherever they were. I can't remember Michigan or something. Um, the 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 maybe it was just the the, the actual setting with the time of year um it just seemed so that the world building in that case um and the expression of the show seemed so small to the point that it felt to me as a detriment um and so much of the show hinges on how much you buy the conceit that the characters will fall for OA enough that we want to spend time with her telling them her story in a house that is being built. Um, the story of the, of OA being a prisoner to Hap and Homer and everyone in prison and just the, the, the look of their prison um, it's fascinating stuff. The um, I'll get to Jason Isaacs. Uh, no, I, I won't. I'll, I'll say it now. I mean, he's fucking amazing in this show. And the fact, I understand the frustration with the fact that season two is it and we're not getting more. Not only does season two, which I will talk about in a second, leave off so brilliantly, but he is such a fantastic villain. Um that he is so irredeemable that you actually, you think that he is and yet he's so likable and he's punchable, but you, yeah, you still like him. I mean, he, he really has sort of taken the torch from Michael Emerson's Ben Linus in many ways, but in, in his complete own way. Um, I'm going to really miss that character who thinks that what he's doing is, is the right thing to do. Um, so the first season, and there's just a lot of talking, there's, there's a lot spent on, uh, you know, these kids, um, that I, I don't know if, if we have, I did not connect to them as, as much as I think that the show wanted me to, um, but BB is, is great, um, you know, it, it is a nice cast, it's a really good cast, uh, and, and Britt Marling does a, a wonderful job. Um, in it and then her how well she does actually um, is expressed in the second season but I want to stick with the first season and but with the first season again so much of it rests on 
how much you buy the conceit of these characters sitting around listening to this other character and the visual representation of um, multi-dimensional travel through uh, artistic dancing. Um, So there is an earnestness there that you have to give it credit for because they really go for it, you know. But to me, being on some level always an immature 12-year-old boy, um, I there's always a part of me that sees that and kind of bristles at it. Like, what, what am I watching? Um, the choreography is incredibly complex and well done. The physicality of the actors as they perform their moves um, is commendable and impressive but at the end you ha- really what it comes down to you have to buy it you have to buy the passion that these characters are feeling about these moves and you have to buy the conceit that these moves when working in tandem open up a door to another where and i don't know if i ever fully buy it um and the show moves away from the necessity of those moves um, as it moves into the second season. Those moves, those movements are still important, but let me get to the second season now. The second season completely recalibrates what this show is and what can be to the point where it's almost unrecognizable from the first season physically. There's a new location. I don't know if there's a bigger budget. There appears to be. The cinematography seems better. The costuming seems better. The scope seems grander. The stakes seem higher. The show gets weirder. Um, it, it, it casts new characters. Um, it becomes a new show. And this level of reinvention was teased that that is what the show will be as it continues. Unfortunately, we don't get to see what happens in, in season three because Netflix canceled it. And that sucks. So... I was lukewarm on season one. I fell in love with season two. Um, and I'm very upset that we're not going to get a season three. And the fact that um, both Hap and um, OA travel to the real world and it's Jason Isaacs and Britt Marling now playing their characters, playing themselves. It's Stephen King being in the Dark Tower all over again. And I love it. I would have loved to have seen um, what happened with season three. And and I'm glad that I wasn't a fan at the time of the cancellation because I know that there was a lot of confusion when Netflix said that they canceled it coming off the heels of the way that the the season two ended. It would have seemed like a ploy on Netflix, you know, to... You know that that was part of the game, right? So that must have like had a caused a lot of mixed emotions with people. Um, so dark and the OA, it was just a wonderful month or so of 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 television watching um, for me. Um, really into both shows, um, and I'm sad that I'm done with them. Okay, one last thing I want to talk about was Kill Creek. Um, so I, I heard about this. I decided to finally read it. Uh, I'm so glad guys that I'm reading this. This is a book that I think that Stephen King kind of wishes 
that he had uh, written about because clearly, as I've talked talked about um, many, many times before in the Stephen King cast, Stephen King loves writing about writers. Um, Kill Creek so far, like I said, I'm only halfway through, um, is on the surface level, just a good horror story with all that kind of spookiness that I like around Halloween. The first half takes place leading up to Halloween and on Halloween night in a haunted house. Okay, so it's got that going for it. The main character is an author. And the main character is one of three other horror authors. That's what makes this so cool, is that not only does it explore these characters as they make their way through a horror novel, but there is a metatextual element as well, where the characters... Um, are constantly commenting on the horror genre, but not in like a winky winky scream or cabin in the woods way, but in a very analytical um, and honest way uh, that I like. And it's fun when you get to see these four horror authors interacting with each other within a haunted house. Um, each one of these characters is recognizable of horror authors that you might know but don't have a necessary one-to-one analog. So your main character um, is Stephen King-ish, but he doesn't have the, um, uh, the the sheer number of books that Stephen King does. He doesn't have the, the, the stature that Stephen King does. It's just that the stories that he, he tells are of that recognizable real world and that can draw people in. He's a mass market um, popular horror writer that has literary that has you know actual talent um you have an elder statesman sort of uh horror author who is more reserved in his writing um and lets the you know he he actually is is close to to writing literature with a capital l and um he believes what is not stated and was not shown on the page is more frightening you have a character who is similar to rl stein um who has um a slew of books that that sell out instantly you know they're just rows and rows and rows in a bookstore um that's that targets a young adult audience um this is like rl stein except it the, the books themselves are targeted for a little bit older. And then you have um, an author who is a cross sort of between like the, like the, the, the red hot popularity of uh, Gillian Flynn with the um, uh, sadomasochistic um, like sexual torture component of like a Clive Barker Um so you have these four figures of the, the horror um, publishing world in a house um, on Halloween for a particular reason, um, and it works. And what's cool is that they, they kind of like, you know, because they're all coming from it from different sensibilities, um, they aren't entirely simpatico with one another. And yet, because they all love horror and they're all constantly trying to explore what horror is to them and for them... It's cool like when they're like they kind of like snowball um each other and and kind of play with each other when they tell stories um you know they'll kind of get each other going and start to 
tell a ghost story or a, a horror story and they're picking up where the other one left off um, and kind of making fun of each other at the same time. And it's, it's good. It it's, it's really good. Um, I, I think that in my summary of this, I am making it more winking than it actually is. Um, it is, it is meta without the meta being the focus. It's, it's the back. It's, it's another layer. It's a foundational layer. Um, but it, it doesn't overshadow the plot or the thrills or the tension or the fear um, that you feel as you read. It's wonderfully written and it's uh, very spooky. Um, and I, I think that everyone should get their copy and then wait, wait just a couple weeks until the nights start to get a little bit darker, a little bit earlier and the leaves start to fall and crunch beneath your feet and you're, Feel that 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 draft and that breeze coming through your windows. Um, I think that's the time when you should read this book. But you all should read this book. Um, I'm going to champion it, and I, you know, I'm probably setting myself up for failure. I might fall apart in, a, in the second half, though I doubt it. Um, I'm into it. I'm into it hard, um, and I hope that you are too. Okay, guys, that's all I got for this week. Uh, next week I'll be back uh, to talk about Dolores Claiborne. Um, in the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>